This is KMTT and today's Thursday this Zman Choref Taf Shin Ayin will be having a series by Rav Kalmin Numen on society and halacha. Hello, this is Shiro 6 in the series on halacha and politics. Last time we began to speak about the different types of authority that the king has and today we will extend on that see perhaps other opinions and ask what is the basis, the legal and theological basis or political basis for the authority of the king. Just to review, last time we spoke about all the powers of the king regarding the name of Monod, the ability to tax, to confiscate property, etc., and regarding the name of Fasod, the authority that the king has in certain situations to execute people. In what cases did we see such authority? Basically, we mentioned that according to the Rambam, there are two different situations where the king is said to execute someone. One is in the case of a murderer, in which we are not able to execute the person through the usual processes of law because of one of two factors. Either because the laws of halachic evidence do not allow execution on this basis. For instance, if the person killed uh, in the presence of one witness, or we only have one witness, or if there's only circumstantial evidence, uh, these, according to the usual halachic rules of evidence, uh, do not make it possible to carry out capital punishment in such a case. So we saw last time that the king is empowered and that has to do, of course, with his function as a leader, as someone who's responsible for the good of society, uh, uh, to execute someone in such a case. The second situation of a murderer is a case where there wasn't a halachic act of murder carried out. In other words, we know what happened, but what happened cannot halachically be punishable as murder using the regular halachot, because, for instance, uh, it was done by grammar, it was done indirectly, the person hired someone else to do it for him, right, so therefore he's not halakhically culpable, or for whatever reason, there's a technical reason why we cannot carry out the usual halakhic rules, and therefore we cannot execute the person in a regular baitin. However, the king has the authority to do that. So that's one type of execution. The other type that we saw was the case of Mored b'malchut, the case of sedition. Uh, we saw that the Rambam mentions it in Peregimel Halacha Chet, Kol HaMored b'melech yesh lemelech reshut lehargo, afilu gazara lechad misharayam sheelech l'mkom ploni v'lo halach o shelo yatami beito v'yatza chayav mita. So the Rambam says that someone who defies the king, even if the king said to someone to go somewhere and he did not go, or that he should not leave his home and he did leave, then he is punishable by death. And the king has the power, he doesn't have to, but he has the power to execute such a person. The commentaries on the Rambam uh, suggests that this is based on perhaps two cases. One is the case of Uriah Chiti, who David told, as we know, to come home, and uh, he refused, and therefore it was legitimate for David Amelech 
to uh, have him killed. Again, that, that's a topic in and of itself. And the case of someone who said not to leave home was the case of Shimi ben Gera, who was told not to leave Yerushalayim, and when he did, he was put to death. So the case of Mered Bemelech is another case where we see the example of capital punishment. The Achronim point out something that is perhaps reasonable, is that when we talk about executing someone for Mered Bemelchut because he's rebellious, it is not because a person broke the law as such. Not every infraction of a law of the king is considered Mered Bemelchut. But Mered uh, Bemelchut is when a person was given individually, specifically, a specific command, and he refuses to obey it out of an act of rebellion against the authority of the king, that is Mored B'malchut. So it's not just anyone who doesn't do something that the law, if someone doesn't pay his taxes, that is not yet capital punishment. But uh, obviously the cases we're talking about is when there was a clear act, a defiant act of rebellion, that justifies Mored B'malchut and capital punishment. In any case, those are the two cases we see uh, in the Rambam. As a matter of fact, uh, regarding Moed B'malchut, the Chetam Sofer in Tshuva and Orachayim, Siman Reish Chet, he asks, what is the basis for this halacha of Moed B'malchut? Maybe we'll get to that later. In any case, these are the only two examples the Rambam mentions. There are those who have suggested that there might be a hint in the Rambam of a possibility of executing someone who did an Avera that is not murder and nevertheless uh, can be put to death. In Hilchot Sanhedrin, Perik Yudchet Halachavav, the uh, Sanhedrin has the authority in times of emergency to execute someone. So the Ramam says, right, The law, the basic law of evidence of the Torah is that you could only punish someone on the basis of the testimony of two eyewitnesses. And there is no possibility of self-incrimination. That's an interesting topic in and of itself. In any case, Ramam says, How about the case of Yehoshua, who killed Achan for partaking of the Cherem, or of David HaMelech, who killed the Gerem who confessed uh, as to his part in the death of Shaul. So weren't these people convicted and tried and executed on the basis of their own confession? So Rama answers, So this can be explained either that it was an emergency decree by the Sanhedrin, as we said, the Sanhedrin is uh, permitted, in unusual circumstances, in emergency circumstances, to override the regular laws and as a basis of hara'at as an emergency measure to execute someone. That's one explanation. Or, din malchut haya. This was a case of din malchut, that the malchut, the kingdom, the monarchy, is allowed to execute someone. So here, uh, the question arises, uh, indeed, are these cases, do these cases fit into the categories that we previously saw of the legitimate cases when the king is allowed to execute someone. So there's a number of answers in the Achronim. For instance, uh, some say that the case of Geramaleki, that can be uh, explained based on 
Din Malchut, because there indeed you do have a case of murder, and therefore uh, it fits into the categories we've seen. However, regarding the case of Achan, that we'd have to use the other alternative. The Rambam suggests is the case of Hora'acha, and the Sanhedrin has broader authority in emergency cases to execute someone, not only a murderer, but in other cases also. Uh, so that's how we would explain Achan. Another possible explanation is that Achan was Mered B'Malchut because he defied the decree about the Cherem. That's a special category, and therefore he is uh, subject to the death penalty by the Melech. In addition, there are Rishonim and Achronim who have suggested that the king himself may have the authority to execute someone even beyond the two situations we've mentioned, the situation of murder and the case of Marit B'Malchut. For instance, one of the cases that is discussed is the Yushalmi in Sanhedrin Perik Vav Halachavav, Maseh B'Chasir Echad, it was the case of a Chasir, of a holy man, Shayam Alech Baderech, Ura'ash Nei Adam Niskakim L'Kalba. Two, he saw two men engaged in Mishkav Behima in Pestality, Amrin, they said, we know, Anan Yedian, do gavra chasida, that you are a chasid, Ezal umisadalan, if you would go and testify about us, umaran David katele. David Amelech would kill us if you went and testified against us. So we see that they are aware that a, even the testimony of one witness would be sufficient to have them killed by the king. So here, Lechor, we see a possibility of the king killing for other reasons than uh, murder. So it's interestingly enough, right, the case here of Mishkav Behema is a prohibition for Bnei Noach also. We mentioned before, in the name of the Or Sameach, that it could be that the basis for Mishpat HaMelech, the basis for the possibility of the king to execute someone not according to the usual laws of evidence is because this is reverting to the laws governing Bnei Noach. The Noachites have different uh, rules of evidence than the regular halachic laws do, and the Yorosameach suggests, and other people have pointed that out also, that it could be that the king, as part of his authority, can follow the lower uh, levels of evidence necessary in the context of a Ben-Noach for the good of society. So it could be interesting here that the Isur of Mishkav Behemah is included in the prohibitions of Noachites and the, the prohibitions of Giloy Arayot. So uh, here also we have a case of a Noachite law, but this does seem to expand the categories of the Rambam. The Rambam does not mention any other prohibition. He doesn't mention that you're allowed to kill a thief. Even in special circumstances, he doesn't mention the case of Arayot. He certainly doesn't mention other, other Arayot. So uh, it, this does seem to contradict what the Rambam says. And indeed, we could say that the Rambam really uh, doesn't paskin according to this uh, Gemara. We've seen such things. Uh, we could say the Rambam doesn't take this Gemara into account. Uh, but uh, I've seen other Chorim, uh, for instance, I saw Rav Yisraeli, who said that the Raman would have to explain that the fear of David Amelch uh, executing them would not be as David Amelch as a Melech, but we would say that David Amelch would hand him over to the Sanhedrin or would participate somehow in a process that would be culminated by the execution by the Sanhedrin. So therefore, it doesn't really fall into the rubric of Mishpat HaMelech. 
Again, in any case, this does show that perhaps there was a possibility, or the, the possibility has been raised, that beyond the two situations we've mentioned, the question of a murderer who cannot be put to justice for various reasons, or there might be other possibilities of uh, execution by the king, although, again, it's not clear. I mentioned before the question of the Chassam Sofer regarding what is the basis for the halacha that a Mered B'Bachud can be executed. And when we ask that question, we're talking about now a gen- more general question, what is really the basis, what is the grounding of the authority of the king? The assumption being, of course, that actions done by a king, if done by anyone else, are prohibited by halacha. Confiscating other people's property, imposing tax, and uh, then as now, no one likes to pay tax, and therefore there is an element of coercion. You are forcing someone to pay. You are taking, in some way, someone's money away from them. That, of course, is prohibited for any other person to do it, to take away someone's money without full consent. And certainly, all the more so, regarding the Fashot, the Torah tells us exactly who is defined as a murderer and who could be executed, and uh, in what gives the king the authority to execute people otherwise. If you execute someone who the Torah does not mandate you to execute, then uh, the, that's, that's a case of murder. So what exactly is the basis for the whole gamut of the authority of the king? Here I would like to present three possibilities, and we'll see how these possibilities play out in uh, other issues. The first possibility is to simply say that the king is a person who the Torah has delegated authority to, and there is a specific package, as it were, of rights that the king, the Melch Israel, uh, is entrusted with. Those rights may or may have not been amplified and exp- explicated by Shmuel in his speech on Mishpat HaMelech, and therefore we have a machloket, but the principle is that whatever authority the king has, these are things that were specifically spelt out, specifically instructed, specifically included, whether in Torah Shabbat, or Torah Shabbat, in Drashot, in Halachal Moshe Sinai. These are all rules that were given down. And the king, once the king is appointed as king, we have discussed the rules and the procedure and the criteria for becoming a king. Once you are defined as a king, then you have that authority. That is similar to the uh, position we know about, about a nafi, about a prophet. I'm talking now, of course, in the halachic sense, not in the philosophical sense, because halachically, we have a halachic definition of what a prophet is. And the Rambam, interestingly enough, in Maranavuchim, devotes a good part of Maranavuchim, of the second part of Maranavuchim, to define exactly what prophecy is and how it is in different types of prophecy. Whereas, in Mishnah Torah, he takes great interest in the halachic status of prophecy, not only in the theological meaning of prophecy. What is the halachic status of a prophet? The Torah commands us a love tishmo. When you have a prophet, you must follow his words. What, how do you have to follow his words? And the Rambam explains that in the Varashud is when there's no specific halachic prohibition, something that has not been restricted by halacha, then you have to follow anything that the Prophet says. If the Prophet tells us to transgress a law of the Torah, then the Prophet is only listened to when he is presenting the 
transgression as a horatza, as a temporary emergency action, such as Eliyahu Bakara Carmel, and that possibility to uh, command people to transgress the Torah on an emergency basis, that itself has an exception, the law of Avu right? Avu cannot be transgressed even in the state of exception, as it were, the emergency situation of a Hara'at In any case, the Navi is a person who has certain halachic status and therefore can demand ob- uh, obedience for he, what he says, and how do we determine who a Navi is? So we also have halachic definitions about how to determine who is the person who shall be described as a Navi. For the Rambam, in a famous passage in Hilchot Yisodei Torah, says the fact that someone tells us Hashem spoke to me and tells, told me to tell you to do such and such, we cannot have an absolute proof of the fact that he indeed is saying what he is saying from Hashem, but there is a procedure by which halachically we create a chazaka, we create an assumption that some person, such a person is a legitimate navi, and therefore the halacha applies to him. Right? It's not a theological statement, this person is a necessarily, is obviously 100% sure is a prophet, because if that was the case, then if we had a contradiction between the words of the Torah and the words of the prophet, then we would be in a serious uh, dilemma. However, no, we listen to the prophet only because the prophet fills the criteria that the Torah itself described. The Torah itself, the Vuat Moshe Rabbeinu, takes precedence over any other uh, nevuah, any other prophecy or any other authority. Okay, but that's uh, a separate issue. What has to do with our case, I'm just saying in a similar vein, the king, we say the king is someone who once has been, he has been appointed as a king according to halachic procedure that we've already described, and he fits the criteria of a king, then he had, he has been mandated by the Torah. Again, many of the Rishonim and the Achronim, they try to find sources in various ways, uh, how to, what is the basis, or at least what is evidence of the fact that kings had certain powers, abilities, and therefore, and were entrusted to do so. Obviously, based on the assumption, for instance, that what the kings in the Tanakh did was halakhically valid, and that there was a Mesorah, there was a tradition, there was Torah Shabbal which defined what the definition of the king was. And again, the speech of Shmuel is in some way illustrative of the tradition about what a king was. Shmuel isn't inventing the powers of the king, he's describing what was accepted as the power of the king. So that's possibility number one. Possibility number two uh, looks more into the uh, kingship and the monarchy in light of universal category of kings, the universal uh, monarchy. And of course, that is already, of course, hinted in the Psukim, both in Sefer Dvarim and in Sefer Shmuel, the people ask for a king, they ask for a king similar to the kings of the nations around us. So this would suggest that there is a continuity between the notion and the authority and the status of a king that we're familiar with in the world at large, and with the king of Am Yisrael, with all the differences. 
obviously, right, there are certain things that apply only to a king from Am Yisrael, only the king from Am Yisrael, has to write an additional Sefer Torah. This question of the continuity between the nature of monarchy among Am Yisrael and monarchy in the world as, whole, as a whole has to do, of course, with the category of Dina de Machuta Dina. Uh, the category of Dina de Machuta Dina, the law of the king is law, refers usually to a non-Jewish king. And there's a famous Machokat Rishonim, does such a law refer to the king, to a Jewish king? We'll talk more about that when we talk about the dealing with contemporary laws as binding based on the question of the Machut But enough said that many Rishonim definitely think that the concept of the Machut applies to a Jewish king also. And not only does it apply, but in a deeper sense, the Jewish monarchy is a reflection of a general category of monarchy. So this idea that there's a continuity between the notion of Dina Machut Adina and the notion of Mispar Melech that appears in a number of uh, the commentaries on the Rambam, for instance, in the Kiyat Sefer of the Mabit, in the Migdalos, in the beginning of the fourth parak of Hilchot Malachim. And it's pointed out by a number of Achronim, Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach mentions it at the very end of his Sefer Madani Aretz, because there's a long discussion of Dina Machut Adina regarding the status of the sale of the land of Eretz Israel in the Shemitah year, but we'll leave that for now. In any case, an interesting point is pointed out in this context by the Maharaj Chayot, who says that uh, it's interesting that the person who formulated the rule of Dina Machut Adina who is the Amora Shmuel, he himself is the one who emphasizes that that the speech of Shmuel that characterizes the powers of the king, that indeed is, uh, is part of the legitimate authority of the king. And he says here, we see that Shmuel is obviously connecting the two ideas, although, as Shmuel Zaman asks, he says, well, but there are people who would disagree with Shmuel, so what, they certainly don't disagree with the rule of Dinu Machut Adina? So that's something we have to deal with separately. In any case, the second possibility, again, is that there is a continuity between the notion of Malchut by Am Yisrael and Malchut by Goyim, and therefore the authority of a Jewish king parallels the authority of a non-Jewish king. The most famous example, perhaps, of such a formulation is the discussion of the Ran. In Drashot Haran, Jerush Yedalef is a very famous formulation of political thought. Maybe we'll talk more about it another time. At this point, I just want to emphasize that according to the Ran, the aim of the Malchut is precisely the same aim of a Malchut in the rest of the world. In other words, the Jewish king, his role is Tatikun Hamdini. His role is political organization, Yishuv Medini, to enhance political order, Tikun Seder Hamdini. The king may impose a sentence as he deems necessary for political association, Hakibutz Hamdini, even when there's no Hatra'ah. Or I'll the appointment of a king, I'm quoting, is equally essential for Israel and all nations requiring political order. That's opposed to Shoftim that that follow the law of the Torah. The law of the Torah is unique for Am Yisrael because it has to do with the uh, transcendent goal of the Torah 
to bring us close to Hashem. But as far as political organization, that is the role of the king, and therefore the Jewish king is has a similar, if not identical, role to the non-Jewish king. And therefore, it stands to reason that if the Melech Israel is parallel to a non-Jewish king, then those powers that we understand are those of a non-Jewish king are part of the authority of a Jewish king. And therefore, we don't have to find specific examples of every uh, situation, but we can infer the powers of a Jewish king from what is prevalent among non-Jewish kings. The third possibility I want to suggest about how we define the scope of a Jewish king is a very novel interpretation that appears in the writings of Rav Shal Yisraeli. I think that more than this is a uh, convincing claim in halacha, it's a very interesting example of Rav Yisraeli's attempt to translate the political aspect of halacha into contemporary meaningful categories. In an article that Rav Yisraeli published first in the journal Hatarav Hamdina, which he edited in the 50s, which appeared later in his book, Amud Haimini, which contains a lot of material on uh, Hilchot Medina, and was also anthologized in a collection put out by Machon Tzomet called Betzomet HaTorah Medina. The article is called Tokef Mishpate HaMelucha B'Yamenu, The Authority of the Laws of the Melucha in Our Day. And after a long discussion, which he brings a number of examples, some of those that we've mentioned about different uh, definitions of the scope of Mishpar HaMelech. He tries to explain a number of the problems and the discrepancies by suggesting a new rule. What he says is basically that the authority of the king is not neither described or defined by the Torah, by Torah Shabbat Peh. It is not a template that is copied automatically from Kechol HaGuyim, but it is based on the acceptance and the decision of the people when they institute the monarchy. I'll read in Hebrew. Mikol zenirem muchrach, shesamchut hamelech eina kevu'ah v'omere bedinei ha-Torah, the authority of the king is not something that is uh, fit or said, but it depends on the authority that is given to the king by the people. Of course, this is a very fascinating example of an attempt to bring a concept from political theory and to say that it indeed is part of the halacha. Of course, as we all know, the idea of consent, of social contract, is a central idea, and a perennial idea in political thought. There's even a, as we know, modern version of social contract theory in the political theory of John Rawls. But it raises a number of questions exactly about halacha. In what sense can indeed a people contract or agree to forego their rights, what rights, the rights over property, not only for their own rights, of course, but the rights 
of further generations. In what sense can a be person be mochel his own life and allow the king to execute someone even though the Torah does not require such a person to be executed? These, as we know, are questions that are in the forefront of political thought, of consent theory. And, of course, we know that, according to some thinkers, uh, people, when they agree to have a regime, when they leave the pre-political situation and they establish a king, they indeed forego their rights, they forego their, uh, uh, many of their, of their personal rights in order to establish a power that can rule over the people. Right? There are other, those who say that people retain certain rights. We know, for instance, that the American Revolution was based on such a notion that a monarch does not have the right to, uh, does not have absolute rights, and therefore if certain basic rights of his subjects are infringed upon, then they have the right to rebel. So, Rabbi Yisraeli, again, doesn't go into the details, but he does suggest that if we adapt this notion that political power ultimately derives from the people, and again, he suggests that halachic political power derives from the people, then, of course, the people have the right to institute, to deputize, to organize political power in any way they want. They can appoint a number of people to run the polity and not just one person, perhaps. They can limit the powers of the king and create a constitutional monarchy. Now, the king is not a specific given, but the king is whatever the people want it to be. That, of course, is a very far-reaching statement, doubtlessly influenced by uh, the Rav Yisraeli's awareness of the history of political thought and of the present-day political system. But uh, it doesn't necessarily fit in with all the classical sources, but it's worth mentioning as because it certainly was helpful for Rav Yisraeli as part of establishing his a way of legitimating the contemporary state of Israel, something that we'll be talking about in further meetings.